Good morning. <coughs> Pastor Brian is getting a much-needed rest today. Uh, so this week I have the privilege of preaching a standalone sermon. I didn't know what to preach on, so I asked Brian and Travis to point me in the direction of a passage today, to which they both promptly responded with passages from Song of Solomon. I, I quickly declined to preach on those and inquired if there would be any other passages that they would like me to preach on. And Brian asked me to preach the first six verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You, you'll notice that the first verse in this passage is the word therefore. And whenever we see the word therefore in scripture, we need to ask, what is the therefore therefore? And so in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is making an argument for why the, the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And he's contrasting why we now get to go straight to Jesus and why that is so much better than having to go to a, a fallen man like Moses. In, in verse 18 of chapter 3, he would go on to, to say... Uh, it's, it's literally in the, the looking into the face of Jesus that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And it's, it's there that we pick up in our, our passage today in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Paul has just shown us why the new covenant is superior because we get to go directly to Jesus and he steps into this text here. So, 2 Corinthians 4, I'll read it. We'll pray, and then we'll just start pulling it apart. So Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry, that's the ministry of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the reading of God's holy and precious word. And so, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stand forever. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this passage of your holy word. Please feed us from it. Show us yourself. Draw us deeper into your love. Spirit, we ask that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, and that above all, that you would conform us to the image of Jesus. So please feed us today from this, from this specific passage. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. All right, so before I step in, I, I want to take a brief moment to define a word, and that word is glory. I grew up in church my entire life, 
but no one actually defined this word for me. And so, like most church words, I became familiar with it without actually knowing what it meant. So I think it might be helpful to give a thumbnail definition before we get started. And the Webster Dictionary defines glory as something of great beauty and splendor. And so when we think about glory, we should be thinking about something of immense value, right? a weightiness, something that, that stirs our hearts and moves us and our very guts. Right? It's, it's something of significance. And if I were to define the, the glory of God from Scripture, I would say that God's glory is the public manifestation of God's infinite beauty and worth. God's glory is God putting God on display. So God's glory, the public manifestation of God's infinite beauty and worth. God's character on display. That's what God's glory is. And we're going to see that throughout this specific text. So let's step into the first two verses again here. And let's begin walking through it. Paul starts by saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So the first point that I see in this passage is, is that we must recognize the strength and integrity of mercy. Mercy is undeserved compassion. And what we see in verse 1 is, is that Paul begins fleshing out this new covenant ministry. And, and the reason that he has confidence in this ministry is because of the mercy of God. Right? Paul's ministry wasn't based on his own strength. It wasn't founded upon his own cleverness or his great learning. It was rooted solely in the mercy of God. Right? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul didn't earn his right to be an apostle. It was sheer mercy. And that's tied to what Brian said last week. God saved us. Right? He's the initiator. And that's true in our salvation and it's equally true in our personal ministries. Just like we were saved according to his mercy, so too are our ministries sustained by his grace and mercy. And that's encouraging news because that's the very reason why Paul would go on to say, we don't lose heart. God's mercy is never failing. And since it's never failing, there's a tremendous amount of power there an infinite amount of power. As the, the author of Hebrews says in, in chapter 416, he encourages us then, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? Every single Christian's ministry is reliant upon mercy. And, and that's really a good thing because the throne room of God is always open for us as Christians which means we can't exhaust it. We can't exhaust God's mercy towards us. And that's good because ministry's hard. Right? I, every Christian in this room has a ministry. And I guarantee you, all of our personal ministries are difficult. There, there are places of tension and sources of pain. But God's mercy 
it's sufficient for every problem that we face in this world. And so, let me be clear here. Like In this context, Paul's talking about his pastoral ministry, but by extension, that applies to all of our ministries. And, and so if you're sitting in here and you're thinking, well, I don't really have a ministry. I'm not a pastor or a missionary. I'm not on staff with a, a campus ministry like RUF or Crew. I, I would simply say that's not true. Right? God has you in this community. And, and to, to say it simply, your ministry is your neighbor's. And so if, if you don't know where your ministry is at, start with your family and your workplace and those who live next to you. That, that is the ministry God's calling to you to. And so whether you're, you're on post at Fort Riley or you're in the neighborhoods of Manhattan or on a dorm floor at K-State, right, God has a ministry for you and, and he wants to use you. And your neighbor or your doormate coming to know Jesus isn't based on your speaking abilities or how well you can share the gospel. Your neighbor starting to build a friendship with you isn't predicated on how well you keep your yard or how good you are at cooking brownies. It's just not based on you. And that's why Paul starts here with, I have this ministry by the mercy of God. And we have to remember that. And that's why Paul would go on to say in verse 2 that he renounces any underhanded ways and that he refuses to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, he ministers. Right? Paul's confident that God's mercy is enough. Right? It's enough to sustain his ministry. And that's where the integrity of Mercy comes in because mercy takes us outside of ourselves. We can just show up and be present in process as men and women in the middle of our own sanctification. We can just show up as Christians and be who we are in Christ. We don't have to be anything more than that. We just have to be who Jesus is making us to be as a family. Right? And that's, that's why as a church, we're, you'll hear this over and over again, but we're committed to the common means of grace. We're convinced that God's word, prayer, fellowship, and the sacraments, that they're enough, specifically because they draw us to Jesus. And, and that's why Paul would go on to say in verses 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You, you see, this is the second reason we're dependent on mercy, and it's my second point today, is, is that there, there are two types of people in the world. Those who have sight and those who are blind. Right? In our neighborhoods in Manhattan or on campus, or at Fort Riley, there are people who have sight and those that are blind. And that's a spiritual reality that we can't ignore. As we saw in Titus 3.5 last week, God saves people according to his mercy, which means we can't change people. 
Right? We can't change anyone's heart. We can't manipulate someone into the kingdom. We can't make blind people see. It's just simply not within our power. And so we have to recognize that there are really two people in this world. Because as we recognize that, then we'll be dependent upon God's mercy and our personal ministry. And, and that's where we'll experience true power. Right? Verse 3 says it very clearly then. That Satan has veiled people's minds and he's blinded them specifically because he doesn't want them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. People's blindness is a spiritual reality that only Christ's glory can remedy. And, and as modern, educated people, sometimes we forget that all ministry takes place in the realm of spiritual warfare. Uh, there's no place in all of creation that is neutral in this war. Wherever we go, we're in the middle of a spiritual battlefield, and we can't forget that. And so I, I don't have time to, to explain all the nuances of spiritual warfare right now. But if we're to understand our role as, as faithful soldiers on that battlefield, we have to at the very least understand who it is that we're waging war against. I asked Jacob Black uh, yesterday, how critical it was to understand your enemy on a scale of 1 to 10 in the army. And he responded by saying that it was a 10. And that it dictates everything from strategy, numbers, technology, equipment needed, etc. Because you always have to plan for the enemy's most probable course of action. And the most dangerous course that they could take. And so the strategy matters in warfare. And since we're in a, a spiritual battle... We have to think about that. We have to think about that, that strategy. I mean, we do this in lesser things, too. Like, I think about my time in athletics when I wrestled. I remember very vividly a match my senior year. I, I was wrestling, and no one had scored an offensive point on me 30 matches into the season. And we were wrestling in this big tournament in St. Louis. And in my second match... This, this guy took me down three times in the first 45 seconds. And I remember scrambling out of bounds and thinking, what are we going to do? I, I was baffled. I, no one has scored on me all year, and this guy is just working me over. And, and my coach tells me to, to switch my stance up, to change my tactics and strategy. And so I drop into a three-point stance. We get into another scramble. And it was at that moment that I felt a ligament in his knee pop in my hand and, and just ball up there. And so you know what I did for the rest of the match? I circled left and I worked a two-on-one on his right side and jammed him on his left leg. And I knee-picked him ruthlessly. Right. That's what I did. That was the strategy. And, and I ended up coming back and winning in a major decision. And... and so I, I say that because, well, Satan has a strategy. And, and if we look in this passage, his strategy is, is really specific, a lot like mine was. It, it's blinding us to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Right? That's what we see in verse 4. Right? Satan blinds people to seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so we got to ask, why does he do that? Why is his main tactic 
blinding people from seeing glory. And I think that reason is, is, is for two, really. The first is a basic reason. It's, it's that we're all wired for glory, right? We, we all want to live lives of significance. I mean, this is why we long to see that buzzer beater, right? Or, or that Hail Mary pass. Or, or we're swept up in a beautiful piano concert. Because we're creatures who love glory. Right? And, and by nature, we, we're changed. We're drawn into those things. And since that's the way we are, Satan, he doesn't want us to experience glory. And very specifically, Christ's glory. And, and that really leads to the second thing, very specifically, is that Satan uses blindness because he doesn't want people to see Jesus for who he really is. He doesn't want people to hear the good news of the gospel and see the immense worth and beauty of Jesus, his glory. Right? That's why he blinds people to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The, the good news of Jesus' immense worth and being freely offered at the cross. Right? When we look into the heart of the gospel, what we see is God's mercy and justice on display. We see this most vividly in the cross of Christ, where God's mercy and justice come together perfectly. We're looking at the very heart of God's character there. And Satan's aim, and the flesh and the world's aim, is, is most simply that you would not hear the gospel, that our neighbors would not hear the gospel and see the glory of Jesus. He, he doesn't want that. And, and that's why Paul's tactic, the way Paul rebuttals this in verses 5 and 6, is that he goes on to say, like, we proclaim not ourselves, right? but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? And that's, that is the Christian's ultimate weapon, the glory of Jesus. And, and it's my third point today. Like, we got to glory in Jesus. When, when you glory in something, you find your worth and significance there. You find your identity and your joy there. Right? That's why Paul earlier was refusing to rely on his own strength. He was refusing to glory in his own sufficiency. He refused to tamper with God's word so that he could openly proclaim Jesus. Right? He wasn't cutting any corners. He wasn't rubbing off the hard edges of scripture. He was bringing Jesus as he was truly revealed and openly putting him forward. Because he knows that Christ's glory is man's only hope in the midst of blindness. He's convinced that Jesus is enough. And that's why he, he doesn't try gimmicks or, or bait-and-switch tactics. Because he knows Jesus is truly enough. He, he knows that if we're going to come to know God, we've got to see Jesus for who he really is. When God shines his light, into our darkened hearts, what's happening is that we're seeing the light of the knowledge of God in Jesus. In some mysterious way, we're being united to Christ. 
We're, we're getting to see Jesus. And that, that should stagger us. That as fallen people, we get to see Jesus for who he really is. And, and I know that, like, I think we can, we can get numb to that fact. But Jesus, he's amazing. And we truly get to know him. We get to see him in his majesty, in his otherness, in his glory. And we see that most clearly at the cross. I mean, how miraculous of a thing is it that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would step down, take on humanity, be born in a manger for our sakes. That is amazing. And that's why Paul unashamedly proclaims Jesus. And that's why there in verse 6, he, he even quotes an Old Testament passage about the creation of the world. Let light shine out of darkness. Like Jesus stepping down in this world is as miraculous as God speaking the cosmos into existence. And that's the very Jesus that we get to know and we get to see. Right? The, greatest, the greatest weapon that a Christian wields is the glory of Christ. And we have an amazing Savior. And so as I, as I thought about how, how can we apply this passage, I think very simply that the first way is we can glory in Jesus. We, we can talk about Jesus with family, friends, and co-workers. Jesus is truly amazing. And, and I know bringing up spiritual conversations at work or in the classroom is, is awkward and that it's, it's difficult to discern the best time to speak about Christ. But let's not forget how amazing he is and how much we naturally talk about the things we love and how we find our identity in the things we care about. How awesome is our God that we simply get to ask people to behold his beauty with us. And so we just have to glory in Christ. And, and the second thing is, as Christians, is, well, we can't forget. We can see. Right? Let's meditate on who Jesus is. I mean, I'll be the first to confess that it's, it's hard to slow down and not be busy and just think about Christ. But I've never met anyone who's been impoverished or regretted meditating on our Savior. And there's a lot to chew on. I mean, you can meditate on Jesus' humanity or his temptations, his sinlessness, his miracles or his divinity, his friendships, his prayers, his teaching, his emotions, his humiliation, his transfiguration, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his intercession. The list goes on. But we have an amazing Savior. So let's, let's just meditate on him this week. Let's dwell on that reality that Jesus is glorious. And the last way I think we can really apply this passage is we can trust in his glory in our daily ministries. Like, let's not fail to, to look for evidences of his grace and mercy 
in the ordinary moments of life. God has not forsaken us. He's, he's committed to transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And that transformation, it happens in the ordinary moments of life. And as you're changing a diaper, as you're driving to work, as you're doing the normal paperwork, as you're having that basic conversation with a friend in the union. So let's not miss that, that God, because he's present in the ordinary moments of life, that, that God's glory is there in the ordinary moments of life. And so let's, let's remember that. And so if I was to, to put this sermon in a sentence, this, this is what I would say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's glory in Him alone today. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for sending your Son Jesus to reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you are a glorious Father and that your Son is equally glorious. We praise you for your wisdom in choosing to use the very glory of your Son to transform us and, and to give us the knowledge of your character and love. We ask that your glory would move us as we live our daily lives here in Manhattan and on post at Fort Riley and in the, the classrooms of K-State. And we ask these things in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.